This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. In today's challenging world, it's very easy to start feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed. If you're experiencing any of these feelings, BetterHelp is here for you. They offer licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. You can talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you're matched with a therapist in as little as 48 hours. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge at any time. Join the 3 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. That's BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. Hey everyone, welcome back to Holidays After Dark, the podcast that explores the strange and unusual sides of the holidays we all know and love. I'm your host, Kristen. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a couple of disturbing crimes that occurred on Halloween, which prove that sometimes the pretend horror we recognize and, in a way, kind of celebrate this time of year sometimes becomes all too real. But before we dive into Halloween, True Crime Edition, last week's episode all about ghosts inspired listener Farand Waziak to write in about the ghost encounters he has had throughout his life. Farand, I really hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, and my apologies if it's not quite right. The first two encounters Farand has had were briefer occurrences, with the third being a bit more complex. With that said, let's dive into these listener tales. For the first, Farand wrote, I was eight years old home sick from school. It was the 11 a.m. hour and Price is Right was on. I watched a hunchbacked old man with white hair, dressed in all black, with what looked like a black cape, walk down the stairs, across the living room in front of me, and down the basement steps. There was absolutely no sound associated with him. I was paralyzed in fear. I never encountered another incident after that. Regarding the next encounter Farand had, he wrote, In 2016, I was in the guest room washing my hands when I watched our Chihuahua Martini walk from the guest room into the master bedroom. The problem being, we put Martini down a month prior. While these are both certainly unsettling occurrences, the third one he shared really takes the cake. In 1998, I graduated college and had no job. Back then, once you graduated college, you didn't have health insurance if you didn't have a job. So I went to work doing property maintenance at a family mountain resort in the Catskill Mountains of New York. It was a great job being outdoors. I, along with other staff members, was housed in the basement of the Forstman Castle on the property. Plenty of ghost stories were told and witnessed from staff throughout the years. However, one autumn night in 1998... I got to experience my own ghost story. My room was small, a bed, a dresser, and a desk. 
The foot of the bed was across from the dresser that held my TV, PlayStation, and VCR, as it was 1998. I need total darkness to sleep. The VCR, when powered on, beamed a super bright red light from the power button, impossible for me to leave it on and go to bed. So I laid down to sleep and closed my eyes. Randomly, I opened them and noticed the VCR light was on. Dismissing anything out of the ordinary, I turned it off and went back to bed. That's when I heard a psst sound. I opened my eyes and the VCR light was on, and I noticed my Resident Evil game was moved out of place in front of the other games. Lightly freaked, I pushed the game back into its row and turned off the VCR. I closed my eyes again and heard the same noise. Again, the VCR light was on and the game was moved forward. So off with the light again and the game was put back in place. I closed my eyes and the same sound happened yet again. The VCR light was on again and this time the game was pushed so far forward it was halfway off the dresser. I stayed awake all night with my eyes open. Nothing happened after that. I also quickly got a lady friend so she could sleep over, or I could sleep at her cottage. Wow, these are some crazy experiences to have had with the other side. Farind, I think it's so interesting that you've had multiple experiences with ghosts, as I do feel some of us are more inclined to experience these things than others. It kind of seems like you're a ghost magnet. I commend you for not running for the hills after that last story with the VCR. I don't think I ever could have slept there again. Thank you for writing in, and again, I really hope I said your name correctly. I'm always happy to hear spooky stories from listeners, so any of you holiday lovers out there, feel free to send them to Kristen at HolidaysAfterDark.com or message me on any of the social media pages for the podcast. Your story could be featured on the next episode. While All Hallows' Eve is usually a fun night filled with playful tricks and treats, this holiday is certainly not immune to tragedy. A rather long list of serious crimes, including murder, have occurred on this night throughout history. I'm going to share two that stood out to me as downright disturbing. Let's investigate a couple of Halloween homicides. On Halloween night 1957, Los Angeles hairstylist Peter Fabiano walked down the stairs of his valley home to greet what he thought was a late-night trick-or-treater. It was around 11 p.m. and Peter had already gotten into bed with his wife Betty. It was certainly too late for children to still be knocking for candy. Nevertheless, the 35-year-old grabbed the bowl of remaining sweet treats and answered the door. A second later, Betty heard a deep voice say the word no, and then a loud pop, which also woke up her daughter Judy. At the front door, she found her husband bleeding out in a pool of his own blood. Frantic, Judy ran to her police officer neighbor's home, who then called in the local police department. Peter was taken to Sun Valley Hospital, where he was pronounced dead from a gunshot wound to his chest. Dubbed the trick-or-treat murder in the press, one local newspaper coined a more dramatic caption regarding the crime, 
a murder as fantastic as the spirits of Halloween. The only witness to the shooting was a teenager who saw a car speed away from the neighborhood shortly after the time of the shooting. There were no gun shells left at the scene and nothing had been taken from the house, despite the family owning two successful hair and beauty shops. Peter's shooting had the characteristics of a gang hit, but he was not known to be associated with any criminal organization or activity. Because of this, that theory was quickly thrown out. Peter and Betty met in the 1940s when Betty was already divorced from her first husband and was a single mother of two. The pair began their marriage in New York and had moved to Los Angeles the year prior to Peter's death. When Betty told the police her account of Halloween night, she explained that she thought there were two people at the front door. Interestingly, she claimed she thought one of them was pretending to be a woman. When investigators asked if Peter had any enemies, she gave them one name, Joan Rabel. Joan Rabel was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1917 and had a lucrative career as a writer and photographer, sailing around the Americas. In 1957, after getting divorced, she arrived at Peter Fabiano's salon looking for work. Joan and Betty became close friends, and she was welcomed into the Fabiano family. When Peter and Betty began having problems in their marriage, Betty moved in with Joan. Joan later claimed Betty told her that Peter had a darker side, one that was abusive and controlling. Peter became threatened by the closeness of the two women, and the Los Angeles Times described the pair's relationship as abnormal, which in the 1950s was code for homosexual. Betty eventually decided that her marriage to Peter was worth saving, and she told Peter about the affair she'd been having with Joan. The couple reconciled, and Betty agreed to not see Joan again. The same year, in 1957, Joan met Goldeen Pizer, a medical secretary. The pair became fast friends and often spent their free time together, drinking coffee and gossiping. It's reported that Goldeen was also gay and had spent her life suppressing her feelings and had married Herbert Cromie, a naval pharmacist, who she had recently divorced. It was during these coffee mornings with her new friend that Joan spoke to her about her evil employer, Peter Fabiano. Joan was heartbroken and angry that Betty went back to her husband, and she wanted to get revenge. Joan began to seduce Goldine as she had Betty, and eventually convinced Goldine to kill Peter for her. Under the instruction of Joan, Goldine bought a 38 Smith & Wesson from a shop in Pasadena under the guise of wanting the weapon for personal protection. She then waited outside the Fabiano's home on Halloween night in a car that Joan borrowed from a friend. They waited until all the lights in the house went out, then Goldine approached the home in a superhero-type eye mask with the gun concealed in a paper bag, much like children used to go trick-or-treating and committed the murder. Goldine disposed of the gun in a storage locker in a Los Angeles branch of Bullock department store. An anonymous tip led detectives to the gun, and in turn, to Goldine Pizer's door two weeks later. She was arrested in her Hollywood home where she told police, it's a relief to get it off my mind. 
Joan was eventually arrested, and the two women went through a number of examinations with psychiatrists, as at the time, the court believed that homosexuality may have made them unfit to stand trial. One of the psychiatrists wrote about Goldine, The only thought she had was that she had saved her friend Joan from an evil person. Both women pleaded not guilty, but eventually changed their plea. Goldine pleaded insanity and claimed she was just easily influenced. Throughout the trial, Goldine often wept and appeared remorseful. On the other hand, Joan refused to comment throughout the hearing and was reported to be stone-faced, only wearing a constant strange smile during the trial. They were both eventually charged with second-degree murder and were sentenced to five years to life in prison. Betty went on to sell the beauty salon after Peter's death and appears to have remarried in 1966. She passed away in 1999 in Palm Desert, California. Her level of involvement, if any, in her husband's murder is still unknown to this day. Did she encourage Joan to kill him in order to free herself from his evil clutches? Or did Joan solely act out of jealousy and bitterness towards Betty's return to her husband? We will likely never know the answer to those questions. Goldine was released from prison and passed away in 1998 in Los Angeles. And Joan? No one really seems to know what happened to Joan after her release from prison. She seems to have disappeared into thin air like a ghost bent on wreaking Halloween horror. While a Halloween night murder of an ex-lover's husband is one level of terrible and outrageous, perhaps nothing compares to the depravity of killing your own child on this night. Ronald Clark O'Brien lived with his wife and two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, in Deer Park, Texas, a middle-class suburb of Houston. He worked as an optician and served as a deacon at a Baptist church, where he sang in the choir and oversaw the parochial bus program. Those who knew O'Brien considered him a model citizen. One pastor described O'Brien as a good Christian man and an above-average father. In reality, O'Brien had difficulty holding down a job. He was employed by 21 different companies over a 10-year period and fired from each for negligence or fraudulent behavior. In the fall of 1974, 30-year-old O'Brien was on the brink of being fired again after his employer, Texas State Optical, suspected him of stealing money. His take-home salary of $150 a week barely covered food and rent, and it was later discovered that he was more than $100,000 in debt. He had defaulted on several bank loans, and his car was on the verge of being repossessed. Whether out of greed or desperation or both, O'Brien concocted a twisted plan, one that would alleviate his financial woes and even allow him to live a more comfortable life. He'd carry it out on Halloween 1974. October 31, 1974 began like any other Halloween night. Although O'Brien had never shown a real interest in Halloween before, This year, he was eager to take his children trick-or-treating. 
Jim Bates, a family friend, and his two children joined the O'Brien family for the evening outing. At one house, the children went to the door but received no response. O'Brien remained behind the group. After a minute or so, he caught up with them holding five giant pixie sticks, a sweet and sour powdered candy that came in a straw-like tube, claiming that the neighbors were actually home and handing out expensive treats. When they arrived back at the Bates' house, O'Brien gave each of the four children one candy and then handed the last one to a random trick-or-treater who knocked on his door. Before bed, O'Brien told his children they could have one piece of candy. Timothy decided on the pixie sticks. The boy complained that the candy tasted bitter, so O'Brien gave him Kool-Aid to help wash it down. Thirty seconds after I left Tim's room, I heard him cry to me, Daddy, Daddy, my stomach hurts, O'Brien later told police. He was in the bathroom convulsing, vomiting, and gasping, and then suddenly went limp. Timothy died en route to the hospital less than an hour after eating the candy. When Timothy's body was brought to the morgue, the medical examiner recalled the scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth, often a telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. An autopsy later confirmed that Timothy had consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill two or three grown men. Police were able to retrieve the other four pixie sticks, all of which were uneaten, and determined that someone had replaced the top two inches of each with granules of cyanide. Investigators had O'Brien and Bates retrace their steps from Halloween night. O'Brien gave conflicting accounts as to which house handed out the poison candy. They soon learned about O'Brien's financial problems and discovered he had taken out multiple life insurance policies on his children. They also found a piece of adding machine tape. On it, O'Brien had written down the amount of each of his bills. The total came out to almost the exact amount he stood to collect from the insurance proceeds. As police dug deeper, they also learned that O'Brien had inquired with several chemical companies on where to buy cyanide and jokingly asked how much it would take to kill a person. They found a pocket knife in O'Brien's home with candy residue on it, suggesting how the candy might have been contaminated. Although O'Brien played the part of a grieving father and maintained his innocence, after failing a polygraph, he was arrested on November 5, 1974, and charged with Timothy's murder. I am not able to imagine a crime more reprehensible than someone killing his own child for money, Clyde DeWitt, a former assistant district attorney in Houston who worked on the case, told A&E True Crime. According to Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist and private investigator, poisoners as a group typically lack empathy, evidenced by the premeditated nature in which they kill and the cold, calculating strategy they often use. Poisoning is also an instrument for someone who is kind of cunning and sneaky, not someone who is going to be physically or verbally aggressive. They are also more likely to be polite behind the scenes, and as a result, they tend to fool people, Johnston told A&E True Crime. But O'Brien's days of fooling people were over. 
On June 3, 1975, after less than an hour of deliberations, a Harris County jury convicted O'Brien of murder and sentenced him to death. After being found guilty, O'Brien appealed his case multiple times, twice to the Supreme Court. In the end, all appeals were denied, and O'Brien was executed by lethal injection on March 31, 1984, at the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville. What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death, O'Brien's last words read. O'Brien, now known by the nicknames The Man Who Killed Halloween and The Candyman, never confessed to his crimes, but there are theories as to why he chose Halloween and poison candy to carry out his murder. It's thought that he was aware of the urban legends about Halloween poisoners and cynically assumed that his use of cyanide-laced candy would deflect suspicion from him to some anonymous boogeyman, David Skull, a cultural expert on Halloween and author, told A&E True Crime. Nearly 50 years later, O'Brien's legacy continues to haunt those familiar with the case. I spent a month of my life working on it, says DeWitt. It is burned into my brain, as you might imagine. In a 2004 interview, former Harris County Assistant District Attorney Mike Hinton said, O'Brien is the man that ruined Halloween for the whole world. Skull says that despite O'Brien's horrific crime, Halloween shouldn't be feared. There is no general correlation in America between the holiday and increased crime. In particular, the widespread fear of poison or booby-trapped candy is an urban legend without a real basis. I would be honored if you subscribe to the podcast. A rate or review wherever you listen would also be greatly appreciated. Thank you to my sister Ashley for editing and producing the podcast. Today I will leave you with a quote from the great Edgar Allan Poe that is very fitting for the delightful frights associated with this time of year. Believe nothing you hear, and only one half of what you see. (laughs) 